0: Hey guys, so this week I have a very different episode for you. I wanted to honor an issue in our industry that is not often talked about, which is the environmental impact that tennis has. Today is International Sustainability Day, so what a perfect opportunity to address this. I really think that we can all do much, much, much better, myself included, when it comes to taking in consideration the environmental impact that our profession has. I think that most of us can agree with feeling a little guilty when we replenish our teaching cards with new balls. I mean, every time I do this, I'm just appalled at the amount of waste from each box, all the plastic wrappers, the lids, the cans, the old balls that we're now throwing away. It all adds up. So I wanted to talk to someone who is an expert and can help us shed some light on this. My intention with this episode is just to give you something to think about and hopefully to inspire you to take some actions that will make a difference, even if they're small. I love learning from Kristoff, and in particular, his Scottish saying, which I decided to use as a title for this episode, and I will not try to say because it is a tongue twister, But before I play you this conversation, make sure to check out our website at vidatennispodcast.com for other episodes and ways in which you can help support the podcast, like making a donation, buying our merch, or simply sharing it with other professionals in the industry. Another very easy thing you can do to show support is to leave a review. It takes one second of your day, and it really makes a difference in helping me grow this platform. Get ready to learn from one of the best out there, only here at Vita Tennis. Enjoy! Hello everybody, welcome to Vita Tennis, the podcast for those of us who eat, sleep, breathe tennis. Today I get to talk with Christoph Firth. He's a partner at Kearney's Communication Media and Technology Practice, where he has been for 14 years. Kearney is a global management consulting firm that works with more than three quarters of the Fortune Global 500, as well as with the most influential governmental and nonprofit organizations. Christoph is a lifelong racket sports player, and he's very passionate about sustainability, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome, Christoph, to Vita Tennis. Did I get all of that right, first of all?
1: That's a great summary. Nice to be here. Thank you, Jennifer.
0: Thank you. and I always like to start with your story how you got into tennis and then how you got into sustainability, what you're doing now. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do.
1: Yeah, absolutely right so so this is really about combining two personal passions of mine. So I was an aspiring tennis player when I was a kid and my mom told, tells me that when I was two or three years old I was more interested in Borg McEnroe and TV than watching Mickey Mouse neds. So I was a big uh, Bjorn Borg fan. Uh, so on on court I was probably more like more like McEnroe, but I was a decent player, but probably not good enough to to go pro. Although as you, as you mentioned, i have carried on holding a racket since then. Then sustainability side, like my my primary and also secondary schools in Holland and in the UK when I was growing up, are really big in sustainability, quite progressive. So from quite young age, I had a a real awareness and appreciation for the challenges that plants facing right and they uh, yeah, really just the ability to combine my my passions for for tennis and sustainability yeah it's, it's it's just fantastic and very very energizing
0: yeah we definitely need more awareness around this especially in tennis i think we don't often think of sustainability when it comes to sports because we just view sports as such a positive healthy thing and we sometimes we, it's not even something that we consider right but what what are some of the main issues that the tennis industry needs to change or resolve to to do better to decrease its carbon footprint and and just do better overall? And look, I mean,
1: overall, I agree. I mean, sports is a force for good as it really can be. And you know, although that uh, there are sustainability opportunities uh, and challenges across all sports, including tennis, I think we should look at this glass half full in terms of the good that this sport can do uh, for society and also for for sustainability. Um, but but why tennis? Why tennis more than than other other racket sports? But if you look at it, I mean, tennis does by far have the biggest uh, ecological environmental footprint out of all the racket sports, right? And the different elements to that. I mean, first of all, I mean, if you look at the travel on the on the pro tour, I mean, so Formula One style circuit in some ways, which means intensive air travel for the professionals, for their coaches, the physios, the whole entourage, right? So there's quite a a big footprint even in that. And even for the amateurs who are trying to collect the you know the ATP points, the WTA TA points just to just to go pro and move up the rankings. So it's a lot of travel. I mean a top 50 player can easily take you know, 80, 100 flights a year. Oh. <laughs> and secondly, yeah. Then secondly on, on the power side, I mean it's if you play in the evenings in you know, like live in the UK, after dark, you need to put the floodlights on relatively early at this time of year. And a lot of the courts still have older style metal halide lighting rather than LED, and that's really very power power intensive, and if you think about it, tennis court is relatively big for two or four people. Right? so you compare and contrast that with, let's say, a five side soccer game where you've got ten people uh, on a similar kind of kind of footprint, maybe only slightly bigger. It's actually quite a lot of energy consumption per 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 sports person. And then really the, the the biggest one, the third one, which I've been most focused on, is on the equipment side. Right, so if you think about it, I mean, there's a whole range of racket sizes and ball colors is. As kids come up through the three different grades, I mean, I've got three who all play tennis and uh, my, my garage is full of red balls and orange balls and green balls and, and old old yellow balls that pass their the use-by date. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that later on. So it's much more, there's much more variety in the equipment compared to, say, table tennis or, or, or badminton or pickleball, right, where the equipment is much more standardized and also has has a longer lifespan.
0: Excellent points there. And I just want to talk a little bit about the travel part, because is that something that you think would be easily changed just by maybe adjusting the schedule? What's what's a, some possible solutions there that maybe you thought about?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. It's, it's probably the hardest one to to fix, right, out of those yeah. different components that I just, I just ran through, because it is a global sport, right? And so the tournaments are are going to take place around the world. And that's that's not going to change e- easily, right? So th- there's no quick fix to that. I mean, the, the solutions have to be more on the actual, the onus is more on transportation providers, right? So the, whether it's on ground, even the air, as you, you start to get to more um, sustainable aviation fuel, making sure that the environmental footprint um, of, of the players is, is reduced. But the actual volume of travel yeah, the, the, there aren't really so many quick fixes on that unless you start to move to more regional or, or localized tours. But that would require a big a big shift and a big mindset shift within, within the industry.
0: Absolutely. I think that there's other reasons to consider changing the schedules. I think the schedule as it is, is also very disruptive to professionals, just to their lives and, and their performance. But also, you know, the carbon footprint, That's that's something that I think a lot of people don't even think about but yeah i think that responsibility that's really hard to put on on the consumer right or the you know the traveler <laughs> to put that responsibility on them but in your opinion who has the most power in creating actual change is it the consumer is it the tennis companies the tennis associations like where do we start
1: yeah yeah, look, another good one, right? So, I mean, there's, again, there's no single answer, but in sustainability, generally, consumer awareness is always a great place to start, right? And yeah. that cover, if you break it down, that covers the players, it covers spectators, it covers people listening to podcasts like this, right? we so you're all involved in the, in the overall tennis ecosystem. They need to understand the issue and they need to also want the change and be part of the change. And it's also in the interest of the sports to do that, right? And as young people... And coming back to my my three kids, if I look at the way they think about the world, it's very different to when I was growing up. But as they become more aware, more emotionally invested uh, in sustainability and more proactive in their choices around sustainability in, in, in their lives, um, they will gravitate towards sports that align to their values, right? Just like they'll gravitate towards other activities or or consumer products that align to their values, so it's really an in interest of um, the, the sports to, to to cater to that, to listen to that. Um, and you mentioned pickleball earlier, right? So we might have uh, uh, pickleball players listening to this podcast. I believe it is the fastest growing sport in the U.S. And it's yeah. one that is, attracting a lot of tennis players and former tennis players. Ball, they are balls that don't deteriorate anywhere near as fast as a tennis ball. There's no string wastage. There's standardized bats, smaller courts. So it's inherently just by design a more environmentally friendly sport. Right? So tennis has got competition for attention and for participation with other sports to, to, to actually attract and retain, retain young players. But be, beyond that, right? who else has responsibility? Of course the equipment uh, makers, tournament organizers, and any other commercially driven organization within tennis is going to be playing to the consumer, right? So uh, as the demand profile changes, they will also adjust um, their, their their models. Um, but at the same time, they play a key role themselves in raising awareness and interest and desire to change. So in the end, it becomes a, a circular process, almost like a, a virtuous uh, cycle um, where you have increasing awareness and demand for more sustainability from customers, but also increasing supply in terms of the, the products, the, the equipment, the, the the tournaments, and the organization around the support that, that can positively reinforce each other.
0: As a tennis professional, we will go through balls really quick, right? Like we have to change a full card of balls. Yeah. If we're teaching six to eight, maybe sometimes even 10 hours a day, we go through a, a full card of new balls and... Probably a month. I mean, easily a month. We have to change the whole, the whole basket, right? Because they're just, yeah. they're just that. And every time I open a box of tennis balls, I'm just like shaking my head. There's so much in there that it's just even unnecessary, like extra packaging, plastic around it, and then plastic around the rim and then the lid. And it's just like, it's so much. And and you you don't realize it when you buy just one can and then you go play, but when you open a full box, you're you're like, whoa, this is a lot. This is a yeah. lot of waste. So what are the main challenges to to change in that, to change in the even the current tennis ball? Why do they use so much material in their packaging?
1: Yeah. The short answer is in the end, it's marketing, right? But yeah. I'll, I'll come to I'll come back to that in a moment. I mean, Certainly, I mean, a lot of the research that I was doing when, when putting together that the paper that I wrote on this topic, and I was, I was also astounded by the facts and figures around this. I mean, just for your listeners, um, about 325 million bowls are produced every year. Right? So that's around 10 bowls every second. You can just visualize them just churning out of the, yeah. out of the wow. scene, right? Yeah. So end to end, those bowls would stretch from Flushing Meadows in New York to Wimbledon and on to Melbourne Park in Australia. Right, so just visualize that and if you piled up all the balls produced since the year 2000 then that would stretch from planet Earth to the moon right, and beyond right so wow. you can just digest, digest that and then to, to your point right only about only about one percent of balls are recycled so you can just get a, 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 an, an image of the the waste that comes out of out of tennis so so how do we fix that so it's a really difficult one in the end right because I mean you talked about the balls used in training, I mean a professional, you know given the, the way they train the way they hit, I mean they'll burn through effectively about 10, fifteen balls a day, right they, they of course want to train with the balls that are used in tournaments, right? They wouldn't want to train with a sustainable ball and then when they're on court and sent to court, it's a completely different different feel. so so that, so that needs to we're not we're getting there, but we're not quite there in terms of breaking that, right. Now if you look at the ball right' there's the ball itself is the packaging, I mean, for the bowl itself, I mean, you've got the, you've got the felt and you've got the rubber, right? So there's the two main components, obviously the glue that holds it together. Neither the felt nor the rubber are biodegradable, right? So, and put them into landfill, it's about 400 years before they decompose. Right? So that, that's that's a problem. I right? think about the bowl stretching yeah. to the moon. All of those, are, well, the vast majority of those are in landfill somewhere right now as we speak. Yeah. So, yeah, we do need to find a more sustainable bowl replicates the performance and balance of the current balls used in tournaments uh, on, on the tour. I mean, you're probably, you're probably aware of the Wilson Trinity. That's really the first major breakthrough in terms of a mass-produced ball that is more sustainable in terms of having longer-duration felt, in terms of having a thicker rubber core. And because of that, it doesn't need the pressurized container. And it's basically in a in a cardboard container, which is completely recyclable, right? Now, is the Trinity there in terms of replicating the, the bounce of you know, a normal ball, if you want to call it that? Not yet. I mean, I, I play with, with trinities quite regularly. And you can definitely play with them. But it does feel slightly different. So I think we're going to get there. Um, but we're not, not quite there yet. Um, now, in terms of the other elements you mentioned, yeah, there, there's the tube, there's the cap, there's the the plastic sleeve that most uh, uh, canisters have. And then there's the ring pull um, for, the, for the pressurized containers. Um, Now, each of those um, has a different approach, right? And the tube, as you can imagine, the rate that you go through the balls, the tube is still probably in perfect condition by the time the balls are end of life, right? So we do need to have some kind of circular process by which those tubes are returned and reused, whether that's through an online channel or through sports uh, stores. It's not in place yet. But that that would be the big one. on the sleeves, the plastic sleeves again. That's pure marketing, in the end, right? So you could you could have instead the the printing straight onto the tube as opposed to a separate plastic sleeve, or there are some some balls where you used to live in Australia, where there's no sleeve at all on on the case, yeah. right? So-
0: yeah. It's interesting because for example Wilson they had the Trinity ball and and I commend them for for coming up with something and hopefully that will grow. But I've seen other Wilson boxes and they're terrible. So it's like you're you're doing this but then the other like the Wilson US Open ball still have all the stuff around it and and there's no change there. So it's just kind of yeah, kind of interesting I guess. But Yeah. I, I wonder, like, would you be able to keep pressure in a in a carbon tube? In a, uh, even if it like maybe if it was thicker or something, could you? Could yeah. that? Work?
1: Well, I mean, I think first, first of all, I guess I mean Wilson's one, but I think that if you, I think all the other manufacturers are the same. I, I'd commend Wilson for being proactive and bold with the Trinity, yeah. but I think that yeah, I think that it's it's an industry wide problem. But yeah, the 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 pressurized containers, well. The, I mean, that can only come if it's completely airtight. And if you have a a, a cardboard or paper tube like in, like the Trinity comes in, then that would not be able to keep the the, the balls uh, pressurized. So you, so I think you'd have to. I mean, again, I'm not gonna, I'm not a a deep expert in the scientific side of things here, but I I think you'd need the plastic or or, or a metal um, tube to maintain the maintain the pressure.
0: I've also seen some machines that bring pressure back to tennis balls. I don't think they're very common for some reason. I, I actually have never seen one in person. I've just seen different things online for it. Have yeah. you seen any of those or do those work well?
1: Yeah, no, the technology is there to reinject the pressure into, into old balls, right? So, yeah, in, in theory, you can take an old ball. You can strip the felt, you can repressurize it, and 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 re recycle it that way. So yeah, the ball recycling, it's it's difficult, but it's not impossible. And yeah, the, the special machines that separate the felt and the rubber, uh, the rubber can then be ground into pellets and also reused for something else. Sometimes they're actually used to lay new tennis courts. So it's actually almost it recycles back into the uh, in, into the sport. Right. I mean, those 325 million balls I mentioned. I mean that could make about sixteen thousand new courts, right? Of course, there's a limit there. Otherwise, the whole plans to be carpeted with tennis courts, which I think you and I both love, but
0: yeah, <laughs>
1: you know, <the> <laughs> courts you can actually you can actually uh, make. So yeah, look, I think the technology is improving all the time. It's it's certainly getting there, and recycling tennis balls, reusing them in that way that I just described, it needs to be done in parallel with actually um, developing um, just more um, inherently sustainable balls that are potentially. Uh, not pressurized in the first place
0: there's one company here that i know that uh is in vermont that does the recycling of of balls but that's the only one that i've heard of at least uh around here (laughs) um right but what can associations do to help i think if you make it so that maybe like the trinity ball for example gets a little bit more support uh from associations meaning like they say, look, this is the ball that we're going to use, right? Then players are going to start training with that ball. And they're going to, there's going to be more of a demand for that ball because now they have to compete with that ball. So I don't know what your thoughts are around that.
1: Yeah. I mean, you make a great point there, Jennifer. It would require like a, a kind of global sport-wide shift to a different type of ball. I yeah. think it would be very difficult to get, the whole industry to essentially make that make that jump over at least not right now right like in October 2023 but I think that as the more sustainable balls just get a bit closer in terms of the balance and the look and feel of the, I guess regular tennis balls then yeah look, that, that would be uh, that would be a switch to make I mean other things if you're thinking creatively right I mean the the, the yellow ball was, I mean, balls used to be whites, right? I mean, before you and I were born, but the, the industry switched to yellow balls in 1972 and Wimbledon a bit later in 86. Um, so, I mean, if thinking creatively, you could actually move back to balls without that dye, right? The yellow dye, dye is obviously chemicals and it has environmental impact as well, Um so that would be another kind of creative way to think. Although the, the reason they switch to yellow is it's just, it's easy to see both um, right. as a player and uh, on, when you're watching uh, on TV, for instance. So uh, it's an option, but I don't see that one happening um, uh, easily. Um, I, I think, the, look, the other lens I'd put on this, Jennifer, is is going back to the, the actual clubs, right, across the across the country. And the majority of used balls are not captured and, and recycled and, and that is i mean that that is one of the first places we should be starting right? yeah. so when i was when i was living in australia i mean there was a program launched it was actually last year called game on recycling and there was a collaboration between the tennis australia wilson again and and also one of the major retail chains sports retail chains uh, in australia to basically put tennis ball capture and collection points in clubs across the country is also, it was also endorsed and supported by Alex de Minor. So having a kind of a top ranked ATP player backing it just obviously helps the awareness and interest amongst, amongst players. So I think that that's something that I'd like to see much more of, right? Because just having those, those bins in clubs, we capture balls and then the reverse supply chain around that to actually get them back either to the, to the manufacturer, to, to kind of break them down, repressurize them, or, or to a, another uh, another destination to to capture the rubber for, for use outside of tennis, but That that is together with um, the push towards enhancing the performance of more sustainable balls. These are probably the two biggest priorities I'd have in mind. Yeah,
0: I agree. I've been to, and I've worked at several clubs, not all clubs do that here in the US, but some do where they have the collection boxes for recyclable and and then you just send them out and then they recycle them for you. So that's a really, really good way to do it. And I I agree. I think every club should do that, (laughs) even if they're seasonal clubs or year round clubs. I think that it should be. Yeah, it should it should (coughs) be a facility.
1: and I think that incentivizing customers in the end as well, right? I mean, you could imagine a system whereby you, know, you or I could go back to a, a local sports shop with an empty canister and they would fill it up with with fresh bowls, right? And or, or you do it through through online. You just return the empty canisters online and then get fresh bowls at a lower cost than if you buy them new. Right? So so simple incentive mechanisms like that to change behavior. Changing yeah. behavior really is what, what it comes down to. And people often think with their wallets, especially especially right now, given the cost of living challenges and whatnot, right? So if you give people an incentive to actually act more sustainable and at a at a lower cost to themselves and make it easy for them, that, that, that would be a, an interesting thing to do. And then look, the, the other thing people respond to, especially in the social media age, is if you or I were to start to recycle or return our balls, reuse the canisters more systematically and get some kind of green stamp or accreditation that we are green tennis players. And that's the kind of thing that people like to shout about in social media, right? And then you get kudos from your friends and fellow players. Right. So putting in place some little ideas like that that will change behavior and drive uh, incentives uh, to change behavior can really have quite an oversized impact.
0: That's a great point. And have you seen any advances in technology that you're excited about that will help tennis be more sustainable other than than the Trinity Ball and the recycle programs? Is there anything that is maybe coming up that people are not too familiar with that you can think of?
1: Well, look, I mean, I, I don't have any kind of secret knowledge or anything like to share, unfortunately. <laughs> but but certainly, <laughs> uh, the technology, I mean, it comes back to technology we we're talking about, right, in terms of the the Stripping the felt from the, the rubber core and um, repressurizing all balls, that technology is moving, advancing rapidly. If you look at where it is today versus where it was, like even five and certainly more than that years ago, right? And I think that that's the technology I'm really most excited by. So if you have that technology plus a reverse supply chain based on ball capture at local clubs and, and tournaments, that can have really an oversized impact in terms of, in terms of getting to where we want to be.
0: That's definitely going to be the call to action from this podcast is to make sure clubs are recycling all their balls and sending them out. And what about tournaments, the big tournaments, the Grand Slams? You're in England, you probably go to Wimbledon or the French Open. Do you see any tournaments taking any efforts to help?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely right. Wimbledon has been pretty progressive uh, around this i mean like i guess visually wimbledon with the grass courts and the laundered whites it just inherently just looks more sustainable but at the same time in the background it has the same challenges and opportunities as as others right i mean a, a you know, for grand slam tournament like wimbledon they typically burn through around fifty thousand bowls, goals right across the across the tournament so yeah the opportunity and the needs there but what are they doing right i mean I think there's probably three elements. I mean, first of all, like everything, you can act in what you can measure, right? So they've really gone quite focused in terms of um, measuring and reporting on the, 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 the footprint and sustainability and emissions around the tournament right? and, and really had a high level of disclosure. Um, that obviously drives uh, awareness amongst the public, amongst spectators, amongst players. And also when they're reporting it, it really drives a requirement for them to act on it. Right. So that's that, that's certainly one. Then secondly, in terms of the power around the tournaments, I mean, they've moved to LED uh, lights. The, the, the vehicles around the tournaments are all electric now as well. Their electricity is, is based on renewable sources and even small things like the lawnmowers for the grass are electric. as well. Right? So you don't use <laughs> those kind of petrol lawnmowers, there's a lot of little nuggets like that as well. And solar power as well on, on, on site. And the third one, which I mean, is going away from the kind of emissions point, is they really have a focus on sustainability around the, the food and beverage at the, at the event. Right? So we always associate Wimbledon with strawberries and cream, but there's a lot of other in- ingredients that they have. And they source local, they source seasonal. From the UK, they have plant-based options rather than having people eating burgers and, and fish and chips. right? So, so they're really, really doing quite a lot around that. I, I'd still like to see them do more in terms of some of the topics that we just talked about, right? Around um, the balls and the, the canisters and that element of sustainability around the tournament. But certainly they're really starting to, to make the right noises and pass the right messages in terms of the importance of sustainability in the sport.
0: Yeah, I think every little bit helps. And I think people a lot of times just, I feel like people don't do anything just because it gets overwhelming and it's like, well why should i do this when there when one single player is taking in 800 flights in a year right so what would be your message to someone that maybe has had that thought or or feels overwhelmed and and things like there's just not much that they can do
1: yeah yeah great Look, so i mean i'm scottish and you can tell from my accent but in, in scotland yeah. we have we have a saying which is basically money mickle a muckle right? Which basically means <laughs> that if you put together all the small pieces, then you actually end up with a big piece, right? And so it was in that spirit, every little helps, right? And everything that you do, Jennifer, that I do, that the, the listeners uh, to this podcast do, it all adds up, right? So I know that the problem might seem overwhelming when, as you say, you're looking at the volume of flights that, that players are taking. If you look at just the sheer number of balls right I mean you're thinking if there's 325 million Mm -hmm. balls and what's this one canister of 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 four balls is going to make any difference but we have to think that if you put all those individual canisters together then you do get to that 325 million so um if we all if we all do our part um then that will contribute to the whole and then yeah then it's about raising awareness spreading the words extend the use of your balls right just think can I play one more uh, match with these balls rather than chucking them and opening a new canister? Do I need to change the strings yet or can they last a little longer without overly compromising uh, performance? And then go and speak to your tennis club about putting a recycling bin right so in in the club. It's a slow effort. It's no-brainer. If, if the infrastructure exists to collect in, in your local area, then, then it's easy. If not, then you know, start to make some noise about it and ask questions of your local tennis association and i think together we can really start to make an impact
0: absolutely and i meant to ask you also about other equipment do strings have a big impact which would be the most environmentally friendly string what about rackets what kind of impact does the people buying new rackets every year what does that mean
1: yeah no and rackets absolutely right and because you have all the different racket sizes i mean here again there, there are a few different opportunities i mean first of all I mean rather than letting the the kind of rackets the smaller rackets if you've got kids as they're growing up just gather dust in the garage, we re- put them back into the sport, right? Whether it's selling them secondhand or donating them or just finding a use for them that would avoid someone having to buy a, a, a new racket and then all oh. the materials that sit behind that, right? So that's that, that should be a relatively easier one. And then the the other opportunity here that I'd like to see is the actual manufacturers being more proactive in terms of taking back secondhand racket, rackets, refurbishing them and getting them back out there. Right. And like we're seeing that now in the mobile phone sector, right. Yeah. Um, so certainly in the UK, I'm sure in the US, elsewhere, refurbishing old phones, selling them at, at a lower cost than the new racket. Why does that not exist? New, new phones. Sorry. Why does that not exist in tennis with, with rackets? Right. Right. So. Strings are a bit more difficult right i mean you can't you can't recycle those as easily as it's, it's more complicated, but uh, you know if we start with the balls as priority, just given the sheer volume and then go to rackets, I, mean, I think that would already make a make a big impact in our sport,
0: yeah, well, thank you so much, and I always ask this is what has been the grand slime moment and the double bagel moment of your career so far, so the high and the low we could talk about maybe. On the court, as a player, or in the sustainability world, what has been like the highlight and the 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 not so good part? <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> I mean, on court, I mean, I was a decent player when I was when I was young. Uh, when I was living in Amsterdam, I. I won one of the big under 10 tournaments in, in the city, beating a guy in the final called Bjorn, who had obviously been named after Bjorn Borg, with his parents, you know, aspiring for him to, to to be a champion. And I, I went to that game with a real underdog mindset and I just played the, the game of my life at the time. And uh, yeah, so that was, that's probably my biggest win on court at least. I'll also just mention while we're talking about it. I mean, I've had such a, a, a high degree of interest from people like yourselves and others in the the article I, I wrote and posted uh, on the on this topic, that was and that was a surprising high for me as well because I never expected this level of of interest in the topic. So that's a second high for me. Uh, I guess the the low is I mean coming back to my career I was probably not kicking on from that. <laughs> ten year old was when I hit my peak, right, and <laughs> I wasn't able to kick on from there. I, I was a slow developer physically, so I wasn't much taller when I was fifteen than I was when I was ten. <laughs> I kept, kept yeah. falling behind my peers, um, so. Yeah I think ends up um I mean I end up switching away from tennis to badminton and ping pong and I just rediscovered my love for tennis about about 5 6 years ago right so yeah could I have pushed through I mean you see some some short players in the tour who've done pretty well but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. That that's actually pretty funny. But hey, you're still healthy. You're still playing racket sports. So that's you know, they're the lifetime sports. So that's the best way, I think, to to stay fit and stay healthy throughout your life is to have to have a sport that you can play. I mean, how boring is it to go to the gym and just get on a treadmill? Yeah, yeah um,
1: absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and I was in I was in the US a couple of weeks ago, seeing my brother in San Diego, and he introduced me to pickleball the first time it's not taken off in the uk in the same way as it has in, in the us yeah and, and i love it. It, it was fantastic i mean the fact that i beat him obviously was a, a cherry on top <laughs> uh, I've never to Sport before but uh, yeah look you're right jennifer i think that I, I, it comes back to the point that sport has so much power and capacity for good uh in society and also in sustainability that i'm really really thrilled by the opportunities and you know thanks again for inviting me to join you today and for the of for the
0: and, and before you go, I was wondering, because there's got to be people out there that are doing great things in the sustainability world, in the tennis world. I mean, I think we all care. I think it's just we don't all take enough action at times. Are there any companies or any initiatives that that you're aware of that maybe we're not aware of that that you want to give a shout out to?
1: I mean, look, there are a lot of people doing a lot of good things. And what's energizing is that a lot of that energy is coming from young people, right? And uh, there's a lot of passion and drive. But look, I mean, there's so many examples. I mean, one really interesting one in the soccer world over here is a small club called Forest Green uh, Rovers. And they were way ahead of any of the really big soccer clubs in terms of saying, we're going to be sustainable. Maybe it's because they've got the word forest in their name. I I know, right? Uh But uh, if if you want some ideas in terms of how a pro sports club can really just Take the initiative, despite being relatively small. But they're a really interesting case study uh, to look out for. So yeah, and that's one to check out. And look, what I also enjoy working with Carney is that we are, I think, one of the first, if not, we were the first management consulting firm to set science-based uh, targets around our operations to really drive sustainability in terms of how we work. Well, we're a very travel-intensive sector as well. So what I'd say is, like me, if you find an organisation that really lives and breathes sustainability where you have like-minded people around you day-to-day and that would be probably the best way in which you can jointly co-create a high level of impact that you can have
0: fantastic and i will make sure to link your article too because that's actually how i found you was through your article i was frustrated i was looking for things about what we can do in the tennis world and your article was one of the first things that came up and i was like oh this is so great i gotta talk to this guy (laughs) (laughs) so thank you so much for taking the time actually this is going to come out on sustainability day which is the last wednesday of october (laughs) thanks so much jennifer Thank you so much for listening. And if you're interested in reading Christoph's article, I have that link for you in the show notes, of course. What did you think of this episode? Will you do anything differently after listening to what Christoph said? Please let me know. You can always reach out to me at vidatennispodcast at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube under Vida Tennis Podcast. I will see you next week for another exciting episode of Vida Tennis.